Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Dr. Miller, welcome to the War Room. Ryan, thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Okay, first things first, we were talking offline. I will link to this in the show notes. We had on Stephen Wolf, um, who wrote the book Christian Nationalism. You have a book out, The Religion uh, of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism. And I think we'll try to get this out in time for the debate, but I think you guys might have a discussion coming up. Um, let's go ahead and just promote that so that people can, if it comes out before or after, they can go look this up so they can hear uh, you two talking about it as well. So what's going on there? Yeah, we're recording on Monday the 13th, and it's this coming Friday. We'll be at George Washington University. There's a day-long conference on Christian nationalism, and there's a half dozen or more panelists. I'm one of them, and uh, Stephen Wolf is another one. So we're going to be on uh, in the same panel together. Uh, I hesitate to call it a debate. I really hope it's a civil discussion, but we, of course, come at this from opposite perspectives. Okay, well, it will be civil on this show, so we can we can assure <clears throat> listeners that. So, yeah. first off, why? What is Christian nationalism? When you say that term, what does that mean, and what's the concern with it? Yeah, so that's the whole book, right? So, uh, in thirty <laughs> seconds or less, yeah, that's the, yes. that's the that's the challenge. So, what's remarkable is um, I just we, you just mentioned Stephen Wolf's book. I actually think that he and I have a pretty similar understanding as to what this thing is, what Christian nationalism is. When I first wrote the book, it came out <clears throat> last uh, July in, of 21, uh, 22. <laughs> and uh, one of the criticisms that I got was like, that I'm making something up, that Christian nationalism is not real, that I'm being an alarmist uh, or exaggerating it. And I, I don't hear that so much anymore because it's pretty plain Christian nationalism is a real thing, especially when there's books out there saying the case for Christian nationalism. Right. So, what is it? I think the best one sentence. Uh, definition I can give is this. <clears throat> if you think that America is a Christian nation and you think the government, it's the government's business to keep it that way, I think that's Christian nationalism. If it's just the first part, if you're just saying, hey, America's a Christian nation and I sure hope, uh, you know, I'm going to work to keep it that way through my own efforts. I don't think that's Christian nationalism. I think that's being a Christian and working for justice in the public square. But if you're going to saddle the government with the responsibility for making us a certain kind of country, of defining our cultural identity, and telling us that we're a Christian people at the point of law, that's Christian nationalism. Okay. And how then would that differ? So if you're saying this is something that's not good, what would be different from an atheistic nationalist or a Muslim nationalist or, or whatever? Because... I understand your definition, I think, yeah. but at the point of law, all of these groups are going to want laws shaped a certain way. And so yeah. what would be uniquely bad about Christian nationalism? So let's talk about nationalism generally, right? All nationalism, uh, you know, imagine the the map of the world's cultures. The nationalist looks at the map of the world's cultures and it sees a checkerboard where you got these uh, very discrete squares with very clear orderly boundary lines, easily drawn, hard boundary lines. And you can say with certainty that this square over here is not just France, not just the country France, but the essence of Frenchness, that, that French culture belongs in this square and the essence of German culture on that square. And once you draw those nice, hard and fast, clear boundary lines, then you, you simply say every square gets its own government. That's nationalism. 
So when you define our country by a shared trait, in the case of American Christian nationalism, by our uh, Christian heritage, our Christian culture, and then you say, you know, you, you get a government to preserve and protect and upkeep that identity. And so uh, you said, what about a Muslim nationalist? Well, the, the, there's that's a thing. We call them Islamists. And that's actually quite prevalent in a lot of the Islamic world as Islamists try to define their countries by reference to a political understanding of Islam. I think Pakistan is a great example of that. Then, of course, there's a lot of secular and ethnic kind of nationalisms that was prevalent all across the 19th century. Uh, and religious nationalism is certainly not uniquely American. Uh, I, I think that there is a very strong element of religious nationalism in Russia today. The Russian Orthodox Church has sort of abased itself uh, by blessing Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. And they define Russian identity as this shared Slavic Orthodox identity, which is precisely why they claim Ukraine doesn't exist. Ukraine is part of Russian identity. Hmm. So, right. So you, you have the the blocks that you will um, in the in the kind of the essence argument, but but still, there, there's a question that I guess I'm not clear on. Who should be deciding how the laws are made and on what morality, on what basis of morality they are made? Because I don't see how you can, if you want to say that maybe one group shouldn't decide it because you disagree with their morality. You still have a, that's still a moral argument. So I guess I'm, I'm I'm confused or not clear on how laws should be formed. Then, so you're, I talked I talked about culture, and you're responding by talking about morality, right? So there's kind of two separate conversations or two tracks here, mm -hmm. and let's let's keep that in mind as our conversation goes forward. Okay. You did ask like who makes the laws? Look, I'm all in favor of democracy, right? So like essentially, we should make the laws, or our chosen representatives should, and in doing so. We ought to respect the reality of pluralism in our body politic. We're all different, and we all think different, believe different, and and we are we have different identities. And so the laws we pass shouldn't uh, outlaw the difference, right? The First Amendment is there for a reason. Uh, and so the, even though I'm a Christian and I want to work for justice in the public square, I don't think it's my business to pass laws that make other you know, sort of essentially force other people to be Christians. Right? There's a there's a lot of gray area there. Uh, how far can we work for justice without kind of crossing that boundary line? Happy to talk more about that. I think there's a couple of easy litmus tests to make sure that we don't discriminate as we're voting our values, make sure that we're being practical and prudent as we vote our values, and uh, make sure that we respect the right boundary lines between uh, church and state. All right, but you asked about morality, and you know who gets to say? Uh, the, the short answer is... Um, uh, in the, in the Declaration, talks about nature and nature's God. And that was the Founding Fathers' way of referring to natural law. Uh, a lot of Americans today either are unfamiliar with natural law or maybe even uncomfortable with the language. But every time we invoke human rights, we're actually making a natural law argument. We're arguing that there is something inherent in the created order of the universe that we need to respect. Uh, that is the dignity of human beings. That, I think, is our cornerstone for political morality. Uh, the in, inherent created order of the universe. And that's something that Christians can argue for, but uh, it not, it's not limited to Christianity. That's the whole point of natural law, is it's not rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in the order of things. And it was not Christians who made up natural law. It was a bunch of pagan Greeks and pagan Romans before Jesus. Uh, so I think that we can try to strive for a common understanding, of political morality rooted in human dignity and ordered liberty. 
Uh, and that's, that's my argument for a shared public morality in a country where we don't share foundational values and we have a, a difference of opinion about ultimate things. Mm. And so, as I think through this, the argument there obviously is a founding declaration document. Do you consider when you're thinking about the right way to structure societies, um, do you go look at other founding documents from other cultures, other countries, previous ones who have come and gone and considered how they formed it? Or do you think that, or, or are you arguing that, that the U S has a really good foundation? Um, and so we don't need to go look elsewhere. We, we've kind of got the roots back. We're just trying to return to it. So it, there's, I guess there's two ways to look at this one. We've, we've kind of, we started off well, we, we've, um, deviated, or are you saying that, no, 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 we should, we should consider French, German, whatever, how they've formed their societies and, and bring that into how we think about um, structuring the U.S. You're asking essentially as a practical matter here now today in the. In well, the, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about Christian nationalism in the, from a U.S. perspective, right? Yeah. Um, and so part of the argument you made, I, I think, as to why that's not a good thing and why we shouldn't do it had to do with our founding documents. And so I'm trying to understand, do our founding documents, are they the are you arguing that they're the best? Are you arguing this is what we have? Why should we return to those is what I'm trying to understand. Hmm. Um, uh, I do think that they're the best. Uh, I also think that they're part of our history, and so we should be cautious about deviating from them, although not slavishly so. Uh, in other words, we've amended the Constitution 28 times, and, and, and in many of those ways was absolutely essential to living up to the values of the Constitution itself, right? Banning slavery through the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments uh, made the Constitution sort of truer to itself, so to speak. So I'm not going to argue for the unrevised, unamended Constitution, but there are, but I believe the Constitution and the Declaration embody a set of principles that are timeless and, and transcultural, and that we Americans have adapted to our use in ways that have worked for us for a quarter millennium. So let's be very cautious about uh, about jettisoning that or arguing to kind of overthrow that. Um, I want to preserve the Constitution and make it better, uh, recognizing it's not perfect, but it is. I can't think of anything better. I, I can think of maybe some amendments for it, but I can't think of anything better because look at the rest of the world for crying out loud. I don't see examples of better political order in the rest of the world that I particularly want to emulate today in, in fundamental ways. Again, we can borrow a couple of ideas, maybe how to structure our electoral law and things like that. But I think the Constitution is pretty great, warts and all. So, What would you say to someone... Um, who is looking at this going, well, I mean, this is a, a common rhetoric a piece out there today, which is um, the founders were racist. They were slave owners. Uh, we shouldn't, they were patriarchal. That we shouldn't go back to those documents because of how, who those people were. Um, well, how would you respond to that criticism of the founding documents? Yeah. So like half of them were slave owners and most of them were racists. Sure. Some, some of them, some of them were not. Um, some of them were, were principal advocates for abolitionism, even in the 1780s which, by the way, is actually, it, it condemns the founding fathers even more because you can't just excuse them as being men of their age. No, no, no. In their day and age, they were abolitionists. So, you know, that the, you know, Washington jumps and they don't, they don't get a pass. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the greatest virtue of the founding fathers is that the ideals they described are the very ideals we use to, to condemn their hypocrisy. Um, yeah, they had lots of faults and flaws. Uh, that does not obviate the good things, the good parts of their legacies. I'm actually all in favor of statues to the founding fathers to honor the 
the positive aspects of their legacy. Of course, we should teach all of history and recognize their faults and flaws. No statues for Confederates, but all in favor of the statues and the public veneration, public honor to uh, you know, Washington and Jefferson, despite their faults and flaws. Um, because again, they left to us a system that still works and a system that is self-correcting. Uh, it was not perfect in the beginning, and yet it laid down a pathway for reform and amendment, which we have used to make it even better. And that's a pretty good tribute to their legacy. In there, one more, just on the kind of the founding, um, a question that I've, I've thought of before is, I suspect on some level, politically, philosophically, religiously speaking, that the the colonists, the, the colonies and, and the, the early founding fathers, um, as you go through that period of time, probably were a lot closer together, politically minded on how they viewed stuff. So they had different disagreements. Is uh, different, they did disagreed a lot, but but the margin would be a lot smaller than what we have today. Um, so as you move through society, I look at um, you taking like a, a really red rural county, and you take a really blue progressive county, and you go, why why should we argue for these two people to be commonly ruled? Because it seems that what they want on one side is completely different with the other side rule. So why should we argue for kind of a common governance? Because if we've diverted that much, would it be better to have these people be governed by people that espouse their same beliefs and same for the other group? Yeah. First, you might be underplaying some of the divisiveness of the early Republic. Um, while they were, uh, there, there were aspects in which they were perhaps more unified, I'd say, in their... Yeah, maybe aspects of it. On the other hand, within living memory, their maybe grandparents had fought in wars of religion in Europe, killing each other because the Presbyterians couldn't get along with the Anglicans, couldn't get along with the the, uh, the Catholics, couldn't get along with the Lutherans. And they, literally, they were murdering one another um, within living memory of the founding generation. And that's precisely why they hit upon the First Amendment, is they didn't want a repeat of that uh, in the United States. Despite the fact that individual states had their own established churches, they they saw no p- plausible pathway towards religious uniformity in a, the United States of America, uh, and so they wanted to create a framework in which religious pluralism could exist. Where else in the 18th century on planet Earth were Protestants and Catholics sitting down at a table together to create a common political project? That's amazing. There was a Catholic on the final drafting committee of the First Amendment. Uh, Carol, I think Roger Carroll's his name, uh, which is, again, amazing. In Europe, they would have been killing each other. All right, so there was some divisiveness in the early republic. Today, you're saying we have so much pluralism, red and blue America. Can we really stay together? That's sort of my, my point about nationalism. We are so divided, it's a fool's errand to try to impose cultural or religious uniformity on the country through Washington, D.C. And I think that's what both the nationalist right and the progressive left want to do. They want to take over D.C., win the culture war, and impose their framework of public morality on the rest of us. And I I disagree with both sides. I think that's not what Washington, D.C. is best suited to do. I don't think any government should do that. Uh, I think government is especially bad tool for trying to do that. They can barely deliver the mail, let alone impose a uniform culture on 330 million people. Um, So i you know, this is exactly my message. I'm all for radical decentralization. I want to keep the Constitution, keep uh, the peace among the states, uh, common army, common foreign policy, common framework for trade. Uh, but aside from that, I'd be all in favor of 
eliminating the Department of Education, you know, devolving all kinds of decisions down to the states so that states could govern differently. Uh, I, I don't like the way San Francisco governs itself, but you know what? I don't live in San Francisco. And so it's okay if they're crazy. Uh, I, I did live in Texas for four years. I kind of liked it. And now I'm back here in Virginia and it's not too bad. So I, that's, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. I love the plurality of subcultures in America and I'd love it if they were more autonomous in their governance. Yeah. And, and so it seems that uh, the DC thing, I think we, we would agree there, or I would agree there, at least with your, with your point, which is, um, yeah, we, we should decentralize. The problem is there's so much power that it's almost impossible to decentralize it because both sides understand the stakes of controlling DC. If you control DC, then you have far more sway over over people who have no 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 real voice to impact you. And so, um, I don't think either side is actually interested in decentral decentralizing the government, the left or the right. And so, you kind of have this this constant struggle for power that that you can't get past at this point. It seems that's why, as a just my own preference here, I love divided government. Uh, because nothing gets done. And I think that's great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people always complain about nothing getting done, but getting things getting done usually means centralizing more power. And I don't think DC needs more of it. Uh, I'd love to see some reform in immigration and tax law and things like that. But by and large, I'm a fan of divided government because it does seem to keep the excesses of the extremes in check. Okay. So make sure I'm following along here. Um, the U.S. is, you know, your argument is the U.S. has been founded on kind of a natural law argument. Um, it's been very great. It's allowed people with different backgrounds and beliefs to sit at the same table. They've overcome a lot of pro problems. The problems that we had when we were founded because the way the framework was set, it allowed those to be undone as time went along. Uh, and so here we are today. Your concern, I think, with the Christian nationalist movement is that they're going to undermine that. But I think Wolf, in this particular, he is a he's a big proponent of natural law as well. So what where is that rub between what you're talking about with natural law and maybe what Wolf's talking about natural law or the larger proponents? And and why do y'all see that differently? So uh, he uses natural law for a different part of his argument where he talks about our so-called natural affinities for similar people. And I, my criticism of the way he uses natural law, I published a review of his book in Christianity Today, by the way, uh, when he says something is natural, he sanctifies it and says, it's all good. Let's go with that. Um, I want to be a little cautious because nature is also, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world characterized by sin. So we can't simply read morality straight off of nature. Um, we got to be a little cautious about that. And again, the way he uses natural law, he appeals to our natural affinity for similar people and says, let's found our politics on that. And I, I I just don't think that works very well. I think history bears it out that we should be skeptical about forming our politics on natural affinities. Um, if there's one principle of natural law that truly has been agreed to, you know, there's like universal consensus on across cultures and religions, it's the golden rule, right? Confucius said a version of the golden rule 500 years before Jesus. And there's a version of the golden rule in Buddhism. And there's a version of the golden rule in essentially every world religion doing others. And if you think about the golden rule in political terms, it starts to look at something a little bit like democracy, or at least like equality under law, right? I'm going to treat you as an equal citizen because I want you to treat me as an equal citizen. It's kind of a political golden rule. That's how I'm applying natural law to our politics. Live and let live. And that means allowing other people to live wrong. I'm going to disagree with the way other people choose to use their lives and their liberties. 
but that's kind of the price I pay for them letting me live in a way that they think is wrong, uh, the political golden rule. So I, I think that we need to reformulate our, our political morality on that basis. Think, think about the golden rule. Would you like to be essentially the victim of the laws you want to inflict on other people? Yeah, and so you think about some of the you think about some of the popular debates right now, whether it be immigration or abortion or whatever it is. How how do you take a principle like the golden rule and, and lay it on top of some of these really hot button issues? Because it seems that on those issues, the right and left can't agree on how the golden rule should be applied. So I, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm going to talk about Dry Green Story Hour again. <laughs> Seems like I can't escape this, but it's such a good example. Uh, you know, there's these events where uh, it's Dry Queen Story Hour, where uh, guys dress up in drag and read storybooks to children. And folks like Stephen Wolf want to ban Dry Queen Story Hour. They want to make it illegal. Actually, just outright criminalize the activity. And look, I don't like Dry Queen Story Hour. Never been, would never take my kids. Don't condone it. But I also am very cautious about using the law to say groups I disagree with are illegal because the golden rule says do unto others, do unto unto you. Do I want drag queens to run for mayor and ban me from using the library? No, I don't. Um, So it's a pretty simple thought experiment to say maybe we shouldn't ban the group outright or prevent them from using the library. Fair game to say there ought to be a code of public decency that applies to everyone that's fair game under the golden rule. And, and so, yes, there should be, it should be a family-friendly environment and all that stuff. But you can't just say that group that I don't like and I disagree with, they can't use the library anymore. And that group, in fact, they're illegal. You just can't do that. That's not what we do in this country. And, and so you said WOLF. I don't know what WOLF stands is. I have no idea. Uh, but this is tease this out a little bit further. You're, you're saying it should be um, Drag Queen Story Hour, to use your example. Um, if you're in a democracy, is it okay for the democracy to vote against that as being illegal? Or are you saying it should be illegal for the democracy to vote against it? Uh, I'm saying that uh, the the government, in this case, the library administrator, mm. doesn't have the right to deny uh, any group access to the library on the basis of who that group is or what they believe. Mm-hmm. If If Nazis want to use the library, you have to say they can use the library. And if Nazis want to use the library and borrow the event space and read Mein Kampf, I don't think that you can ban them from doing that. There's a famous Supreme Court case, 1976, where the Nazis appealed for a permit to hold a protest, a rally in a Jewish neighborhood. And it was Skokie, Illinois, and Skokie tried to ban them from holding the march. And the Supreme Court overturned it and said, no, the Nazis have a right to march. And I think that the Supreme Court was correct about that. Not because I like Nazism or National Socialism, but because I think that it's uh, not the government's role to start disadvantaging or banning groups or putting uh, restrictions on groups just because of what they say or believe or who they are. Um, So anybody should be able to use public resources like a library or a a public street for a a protest or a rally uh, because I don't want them turning around and banning me and my group from the same. Right. Yeah. Well, and you saw this. And, you know, during after 9-11, right, the, 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 there was a lot of pushback on um, mosques and stuff being built near Twin Towers or they're, maybe they're there, they're trying to close them down. And so you can see how that, that, that um, um, mentality of pushing a group out on a basis of a class can ultimately be used against you. Um, and so as you go through these things, though, I'm, 
I'm thinking about COVID. And during COVID, there was people who said, hey, you can't get out in March uh, or be politically active because here's a case in which you can spread a disease. And yet you have these amendments that say you can protest and challenge the government and stuff. So how would you, how do you think, how do you think about that to where, again, I'm trying to understand the framework of doing to others. On one hand, you, see, you have a group that says, yeah, we should always be able to petition and challenge. And the other hand says, well, no, 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 no. My right to not being infected by you is more important. So you can see a, a clash there in, the, in these, in these ideals where, where the do unto others isn't clear uh, how that works itself out from different, from each party's perspective. Yeah, so uh, COVID was. Um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm going to take a different example. Not not protests during COVID, but rather church shutdowns. There's some people who were super upset that the churches were asked, or in some cases, ordered to shut down during the early days of COVID. And um, uh, what I think the right answer is is that uh, as so long as churches were being told to. Uh, obey the same restrictions as any other accommodation, any other business or whatever, that it was fair game for the government to shut them down. Um, there were a few jurisdictions, like in California and right here in Washington, D.C., where the government, the, the state and local governments were pretty clearly discriminatory in putting extra burdens on the churches. And you know what happened in those cases? The churches sued and they won. Uh, because it was obvious that the governments were being discriminatory and not treating all institutions equally. It's an example, by the way, of how a, a good uh, democratic or small R Republican system works. There's a lot of people who say, our like Wolf says, our government is a tyranny that hates Christianity. Well, it's clear that the California executive was discriminatory against the churches, and it got slapped down by the California court system. We have checks and balances. We have multiple branches of government. And in the end, it actually worked out pretty well because the courts helped vindicate the rights of the churches. So our system of government as a whole is actually doing a pretty good job. It does take some time sometimes to work against the abuses of individual executives. Right. But I guess I guess, I guess guess I'm not clear, though. Your understanding of what you're saying is, hey, we got this um, love your neighbor, treat unto, do unto others type of mentality. I'm asking though, when though when people when when groups disagree on what that means, how do you how do you propose that it's resolved? Because that's where I guess on these issues that I'm thinking of, um, whether you take Wolf's approach or whomever's approach, whatever the approach is, it doesn't really matter. There's always going to be a point to where you're on an issue, two groups disagree, and so how do you determine that? So if you take the the COVID example. Um, do unto others you want them to do, do to you. Some people say, "Well, I never want you to. I never want to prevent you from going to church." They would say that. So, how how do we go about resolving that tension? Because you could say through the courts, I suppose. But going back to your point about the the library, there are rules that are being in place that aren't following the gold rule. So, how, when the, when those two things are in opposition, how do you propose that we resolve that? Is it just strictly through the courts, or is there a better way to, to solve these problems? I mean, I think the right answer in a democracy is that's what the legislature is for. That's precisely where representatives of the people meet and hash out their disagreements and try to make rules that everyone can uh, agree to. Or, um, you know, no one wins 100 percent, but if everyone wins about 70 percent, then we kind of go along with it. Laws and democracies are rarely purely rational or uh, ideologically pure. It's kind of why they work is because they're a hash and they're a compromise. 
that work for most of us most of the time. Uh, so I, I think if I'm hearing your question right, the answer is that's what the legislature is supposed to be for. I don't think it's working very well today, but but I'd rather have a legislature than not have one and have laws decreed by by Caesar. Sure, sure. No, that, that's helpful. So as we move through the next two, three, four years, um, obviously you are arguing against the Christian nationalist movement for, I'm sure there's just practical reasons, are, but are you concerned that there is a, a violent element to this this branch of, of, of this the school of thought as well, or is it more just, no, I don't like how the political theory is lined up? So Christian nationalism is mostly broad, mainstream, popular, and peaceful. I'd say most people who would kind of fall in that category where, that I define, you know, Christian nation, government should keep that way. It's a broad, it's a mainstream, popular, and peaceful thing. There is a, uh, I think, an extremist fringe or element, um, a, even a violent one. Uh, I think the January 6th uh, attack in the U.S. Capitol uh, in 2021 is an example of that. Um, there's a couple of other examples. Um, it's a shooting at a synagogue couple years back by a, yeah, a OPC member, um, another example. These are few and far between, but it does indicate to me that there is something there. Um, and the relationship, there's a relationship here between the big, broad, peaceful mainstream and that sometimes violent fringe. The big, big broad mainstream phenomenon is the permission structure. It's the worldview creator. It's the ocean in which the fish swim. And the peaceful Christian nationalists are often the ones who will, when a violent incident happens, the ones who are going to explain why it was just an aberration or point the finger, do the whataboutism and say, well, the left is worse. The left also does this. The left is also violent. Uh, it's kind of a, they're the ideological ex explainers and enforcers. Um, which I, I think is is disturbing. Although, you know, again, the vast majority of people who would fall in that category are themselves peaceful. And, I, you know, I don't want to cast aspersion on them that way. I think it's irresponsible to take it on yourself to be the one who explains away or downplays the really violent stuff when it happens. And I'm really reacting here to January 6th and the reactions to January 6th. Uh, to me, January 6th was, a you know, an appalling disgraceful, violent terrorist attack on the nation's capital uh, by seditious uh, terrorists, domestic terrorists. And I don't apply that label to every person who's on the National Mall that day, nor to, nor to all the people who were at the Capitol that day, but to the 1,000, 1,200 people who violently broke into the building, it was an act of violence, a political violence, done waving the Christian flag. When they got on the Senate floor, they prayed in Jesus' name. That was religious terrorism. When I take that view and I speak about it to others, uh, my view is a, a minority view. I, I'd say that there's quite a lot of people who disagree with the way I've characterized it and think that I'm being <laughs> extreme in how I characterize it. And they downplay it. They tend to say, oh, it was just, you know, it, it was not a big deal. It was a little, they got out of hand. They shouldn't have done it, but it was not a big deal. Sorry, but it was a big deal. And it was an act of terrorism done in the name of Jesus. People use the name of Jesus to bless an, a terrorist attack on a democracy. I don't take that lightly. And so the broad, peaceful, mainstream Christian nationalist movement, if it participates in the downplaying and the explaining, that's where I really have problems with it.
Yeah. So you're touching on something quite fascinating there, which is um, I'm a libertarian. I'm sure there was libertarians on January 6th that day. I was here at my house watching it going, oh my gosh, what's going on? As a libertarian, understanding what libertarians generally believe, I would have a hard time understanding how to respond to what you're saying. And I have no, no, I don't know the numbers of people claiming to be libertarian on, on January 6th. So I'm just using this as an example. But I would, I'd be, mm, how, how do I talk about that? Because libertarians are for less government, we're for the non, uh, the non-aggression principle. You start going through the things libertarians are for. There is this, this, this weird thing that goes, okay. These people shouldn't be doing this if they espouse what I espouse, right? They are claiming to be similar to me. So, yeah, I, I, I can see your frustration, which is, hey, you people are all claiming to be Christian nationalists in this case. Um, you should deal with this. But also, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how, you know, how do we have this conversation understanding that, well, hmm, if they're saying they're a Christian nationalist and I'm saying I'm a Christian nationalist and, and we're so far apart or libertarian or whatever the, whatever the labels is, how do we have that conversation? Because that is a tough spot to try to sort through the weeds. If one group say, no, 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 we shouldn't do this. Another group say, yes, we should. And they're part of the same group. How do we have that conversation? Because you're right. You shouldn't. Um, I can't, There's nothing worse than um, people dismissing acts of violence. Um yep. But I'm also I also want to be careful to say that I don't want to lump everyone in the same group because they, yep. they thought they were the same organization, yep. if that makes sense. I think in situations like this, the burden is especially heavy on essentially the, the moderate Christian nationalists, the peaceful Christian nationalists. The burden is on them to kind of police their own group, so to speak, and uh, really make sure that um, even though I think their ideology is wrong, I still want their help in making sure there's no violence. Uh, and, and they have a responsibility, again, to police their own group and um, uh, drive the crazies out and condemn the violence and be loud and vocal in public about condemning the violence and saying that has no part in our movement. And if you think that's what Christian nationalism means, you're wrong. None of the Christian nationalists are listening to me. Right? They, they, <laughs> <laughs> they're not listening. To me. So, uh, of course, I'm going to be out there criticizing Christian nationalism and the violence, both of them together, um, and trying to be careful in how I, you know, make sure that I treat them separately. Uh, but I think, I think the Christian nationalists themselves really have a responsibility here, uh, as I say, to police their own group. Yeah. It, it, this, it seems speaks to a larger issue. If you think about, um, when Steve Scalise was shot or when January 6th or a riot that's happening, the opposite side wants to attack and then generalize and to kind of make this your group's problem if you don't respond the same way without, I don't know how to see here, without allowing them the path to redemption. So in other words, um, if you think about some of these events, is is there the ability um, for the Christian nationalists in this case to condemn, but also in their condemnation, for them not to be associated with them at the same level, because when these when these events happen, whatever they are, it seems that if you're remotely identified as one of these groups, that you're going to be attacked as if you were one of the same people there. And so, I don't know as society if we give people the ability to distinguish and distance themselves without completely just turning, I say turning the back, but completely removing themselves from this this group. So, if you're a Christian nationalist and you said, "Hey, these people on January 6th were here," it seems your options really are to disavow your Christian nationalism in this case, or um, to try to downplay it. I don't, I don't really, do you think society would allow someone to 
criticize, but remain, if that makes sense. I think the model I have in mind here, 1992, when Bill Clinton's running for president and Sister Solja uh, made some really vile racist remarks and Bill Clinton um, publicly rebuked her uh, and uh, maybe offended some people on the far left, but won some respect in the center left and even the center right. That's kind of the model I've got in mind here. Um, by by positioning yourself against the extremist, you you actually establish yourself more solidly in the main in the mainstream, and I think that it should be obvious that it is in the moderate Christian nationalist interests to do that, and it would actually make my job harder because then there'd be moderate Christian nationalists for me to contend with. <laughs> <laughs> right now, the most vocal Christian nationalists are like Lauren. Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they're nuts. And they're it's crazy. making my job easy because That's I just crazy. point my finger at them and I say, look, do you want that in charge of our country? Right. Um, no, no. I don't know who does, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I, I both want a responsible person to step forward, like, I don't know, Josh Hawley, mm-hmm. um, but I, but it will, in a, a sense, kind of make it harder politically uh, for the case I'm making to say that Christian nationalism is bad if the, if they indeed are start acting responsibly. <laughs> yeah. um, so for the good of the country, I want them to step forward. Yeah. Yeah. I just find, I find this, maybe you think it's unique with Christian nationalists. I just find this to be a problem um, generally when you get into the, the political sphere, which is once you're kind of attached, you're going to downplay what your side does. You're going to amplify what the other side does. You're not going to take the ale when you need to. And it's it's a problem that we seem to have, in America as a, as a whole, which is quite troubling because instead of saying, you know, if you take the Trump presidency, um, the most frustrating thing about the Trump presidency from my perspective was um, some of the quote wins he had weren't really wins. They were kind of just whatever, but he did do some good things. Um, but then the criticism of Trump by and large, wasn't real criticism either. There was a lot of things he was doing wrong. That was kind of getting overlooked to criticize for meaningless stuff. I mean, he scoops of ice cream or shaking hands or, all this nonsensical stuff. And so you get in this big debate over trying to defend these things where people are just going to double down. They're not actually interested in having a discussion because no one who started the discussion was interested in having a discussion. So you just create all this hype and sensationalism around these topics. Uh, and then you think about something where people do actually lose their lives or they do go to jail. And we've kind of made people immune to put the push in the pause button and say, I can agree with someone on these three issues, but on these three, I can't. And so I'm happy to take um, a partial agreement with them. We, I think we've really lost that in the country with this Christian nationalism or, or whatever the issue might be. If we ever had it. If we ever had it. <laughs> go, go read uh, how President Jefferson, what President Jefferson thought about the media of his day. Yeah, or, or um, Adams. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, and, and, and go reflect on the divisiveness of the 60s. Our, the culture war um, has never, it has no beginning and has no ending. Uh, it, it has always been and it will always be because we live in a pluralistic country. Um, what you're observing is the the reign of sophistry in public debate. And I think it's kind of always been thus. I'm not persuaded there was ever a, an era in which we all debated gentlemanlike uh, with rationality and, and you know, people were actually persuaded by arguments like, when did that ever happen? I'm a little bit cynical perhaps and maybe maybe just having a bad day, but that's what it feels like to me is like, I'm not sure that ever was a real thing. Um, Which is a good reason why it's okay to tune it out. I just, you know, I don't mean tune out your podcast because you're trying to do the right thing, but like, 
Twitter, uh, and TV news. It's important to stay informed, but stay informed by reading a good newspaper. Just turn off the TV. There's, I think, zero value, no redeeming value to any kind of TV news programming or talk shows. That's just, it's garbage, intellectual, emotional, spiritual garbage. Uh, so, so you're right. We're not doing a good kind of discourse in those formats. So just tune them out. Uh, read a good newspaper. Find a good couple of good podcasts because I think there are some good ones where there's real discussion um, about important things. And uh, other than that, live your life, spend time with your family, read a good book. What percentage of, uh, I guess it'd be evangelicals, are you think do you think are Christian nationalists? Uh, it all depends on how you define it. Um, there's a book out there, uh, Take, Taking America Back for God by Whitehead and Perry. And they do a bunch of polling data and crunch a bunch of numbers. And, and they, they've got an answer. I think their answer is a little high because I think they overmeasure a few things, but it's the best you know, answer we've got so far. They say something like 75% of white evangelical, self-identified white evangelicals would fall broadly within their definition of Christian nationalist. I, I think that's the upper limit. I think it's, I think it's high, um, but it might be the ballpark, right? It might be half or so. And again, keep in mind the definition I said, America's a Christian nation and the government should keep it that way. I think that does actually capture quite a lot of white evangelicals in America. Uh, because there's maybe not careful teaching about political theology and what the government rightly should and should not do. I think a lot of evangelicals sort of have this instinctive thought that if it's a good thing, the government should do it. And if it's a bad thing, the government should ban it. And that's, I think, not the right way of approaching politics. Yeah. And you said, you started writing about this topic, you're kind of being made fun of is, I don't know if he's a conspiracy theorist, but kind of like, this isn't a real thing. And now obviously it is a real thing. People are talking about it regularly. Um, where's the movement going the best you can tell? Uh, you know, it's hard to answer. And I think it's sort of even harder after the 22 midterm election. Um, cause a lot of the sort of most out there candidates lost and others only won by the skin of their teeth. And I do wonder if that's led to a little bit of a toning down. Um, I don't think the movement is gone. It's not defeated but it might be recalibrating its tone and its rhetoric. Like I said, I kind of want and also fear a more responsible figurehead for Christian nationalism. Uh, I fear because, you know, the respectable one is the one who might actually win and, and do more damage, but at least they could keep the, the really dangerous people out. So uh, where's it going? I'm not entirely sure. I think elections do matter. So we'll see what happens in 24. Um, Money matters as well. There's been a lot of money flowing into nationalist think tanks and uh, publications and other organizations over the past five, six, seven years. I don't know if the billionaires will keep on fun, keep on flowing the money in that direction, or if maybe they'll start to redirect as well. I, that'd be my hope. Yeah, I, I was chuckling when you said a more a more responsible one might win. I've reminded of Dan Carlin after Trump won. He said for so long. I've I've wanted an outsider to win, and now one's won. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm afraid uh -oh. of what might happen. <laughs> That's right. Now, <laughs> okay. Um, how a couple quick kind of fire questions here for you? I guess the conversations that you have with people who identify as Christian nationalists, um, are are you finding that there's dialogue there with most of them? Obviously, you said that from your perspective, it's only a, kind of a small minority of kind of the, the more violent ones. Um, when you have dialogue, do you find it to be fruitful, something that, that there is some groundwork that could be uh, made with this group? I think so, yeah. 
quite a lot of my interaction is with um, students as I travel around and speak on campuses. And so uh, many uh, students maybe aren't, don't have a fully formed view of these things yet, but they're asking questions. Mm. And uh, to them, there's things that are simply open questions that to me are like, well, that conversation was settled centuries ago. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking particularly about church-state boundary lines. I, I find uh, I, a, an eagerness to revisit that question uh, among the, I'd say, Christian nationalist adjacent or Christian nationalist curious. Um, and I want to kind of protect those jurisdictional boundary lines. I think that's good biblical theology. I think I think Jesus was clear, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Uh, but it is a fruitful dialogue. I think people ask that question and they're willing to have the the, the discussion. I don't think it's a, I'm not finding a stone wall or, or ideological inflexibility there. And then one of the things you said, there's kind of, your definition has two parts. Um, America is a Christian nation and we want to keep it that way. In general, humans, whether it's Christian nationalists or whatever it is, we want to keep it this way. That is the human tendency. So how would you comfort people who say, who you're saying, well, it, whether or not you, whether or not it is a Christian nation is a separate issue. Wanting to keep it this way, that is this a human tendency. What comfort would you give to people saying, "Oh, it's okay to change stuff"? Um, yeah. Here's what you can look forward to. Yeah, a couple of points. A great question, by the way. Great question. A couple of points. Number one, it, it, I'm not opposed to keeping it that way. I just want to keep the government out of the business of keeping it that way, mm-hmm. right? So, if you and I want to get together and form a little civil society group for America as a Christian nation, that's okay. And uh, lobby and, uh, you know, homeschool your kids and host a tea party if you want to cultivate our British heritage. Like, like that's fine, but just don't make it a state requirement and don't, sub, you know, don't ask for a state subsidy for your tea party. Uh, it, it should be a civil society effort, not a government mandated one. All right. So what comfort can I give to those? Uh, a lot of Christian nationalism does stem from a sense of loss a sense of grieving and nostalgia for the way things allegedly used to be. And I do say allegedly, because the first response I give to somebody who is grieving is maybe we're remembering with uh, rose-tinted glasses, right? Things in the past maybe weren't as great or as Christian as we like to think. Um, And it was, you know, the past was pretty great for white upper-class Protestants and not great for kind of anyone else. even for you know low class white Baptists, life was not great, and and the and the government was not kind. Um, so let's remember that uh, the the faults of the past as well. The second thing I'd say is that um, it's absolutely true, American culture has changed and is changing and will continue to change because change is kind of impossible to stop. Uh, and government is a particularly bad tool for trying to stop cultural change. Uh, again, as I said, government can barely del- deliver the mail. I really don't think it has tools at its disposable at, at its disposal for saying, culture, you're going to stop changing and you're going to freeze frame right now. And in fact, we're going to rewind the clock and make our culture something that it used to be or that we imagine it used to be. And we're going to stop changing from that point. Like, tell me what bureaucracy you trust to do that. What set of rules and laws and regulations can actually make that happen? I don't I don't understand that we have the power to stop cultural change. Um, and a lot of cultural change is good. If, if American culture had stopped changing in 1900, we wouldn't have jazz. We wouldn't have Tex-Mex. We wouldn't have 
American Chinese food, you know, on and on and on, like the number of things that have enriched our lives and made it more interesting and better uh, is a result of cultural change. And so we should celebrate that. Yeah, that, that's um, when you when you travel the world or even travel the country and you go around and you experience new foods, new clothes, new flavors and stuff, you go, wow, hmm. I'd like that to be where, where I live because that's, that's pretty good stuff. And so um, obviously you don't want to import everything because we have all, all, our own preferences, but but we do experience that. And, and to your point, it's cultural changes, food changes. There, there's It's a lot more. I think when people think of cultural changes, they only focus on the legal issues and understandably why they might focus there. But there are other side yeah. impacts, food, clothes, music, et cetera, that, that also come with it as well. And it's kind of hard for us to to sit and to kind of contemplate all those things. Um, okay. So you have your um, debate with Wolf. I don't know if this will be out by there or not, but do you have other events? You said you talk to students. Do you have other things you want to push people to, to follow along? They want to follow your work uh, mm. this year? Uh, I am uh, with increasing rarity, uh, still on Twitter at Paul D Miller two, Paul D Miller two on Twitter. Uh, and these days I tweet funny things that my kids say. I tweet my opinions about movies <laughs> and, and occasionally about international affairs because that's my, uh, my sort of my day job. Um, but I'm still there and I advertise my writing. So if I publish another article or book, it'll show up there on Twitter. Um, events, no, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, traveling around to a couple of colleges, but uh, they'll advertise those local appearances. Uh, and then, yeah, if you're in the D.C. area, uh, George Washington University this coming Friday, uh, that'd be the um, 17th, I think, all day long. It's open to the public, a conference on Christian nationalism. Okay, awesome. And uh, best of luck on, luck on that and the book as well. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for the really uh, good questions. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.